If you're able, would you remain standing? We're going to turn in our Bibles to Psalm 119. We started a series on it last Sunday with an introductory message. And uh, Lord willing, now we're going to have 22 sermons on it, both uh, morning and afternoon on the Lord's Day. Psalm 119, we're going to read the first eight verses, that's the first section of the psalm. In your Bible, you're probably going to see there's either the word Aleph or a little Hebrew um, symbol there. That, uh, that's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the letter Aleph. Originally, it represented an ox. I um, don't think it bears any uh, meaning on this passage as it was the ox. So, first, uh, the first section, Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commended us to keep your precepts diligently, all that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I'll praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I'll keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to our hearts through it this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Happiness is the uh, longing, the universal longing of men and women in any culture, in any age. It, it may be defined differently in different places and different times, but happiness is the stated or implicit goal of every human being who's ever lived. You're never going to find a person who said, you know what, I just don't want to be happy. Uh, they might act that way. They might bring all kinds of difficulties in their lives, but there's no one who sets out in their lives to be unhappy. Our own Declaration of Independence says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This desire for happiness is innate in humanity. And it's innate in humanity because God Himself made us not only to, glo- to made us not only to glorify Him, but also to enjoy Him. Our very purpose in life is to enjoy God, is to be happy with Him. But as all you know, humanity pursues happiness in all wrong places apart from God's instruction. Even the pursuit of happiness in the Declaration of Independence is is Jefferson Samuel Jefferson's take on John Locke's. Life, liberty, and property ownership. Uh, That's that's really the original expression from which Thomas Jefferson got uh, what he inserted in our Declaration of Independence. Fallen men and fallen women think happiness will come with the right wealth or the right possessions or the right respect or the power uh, to do what they want without constraints or to find love that's all about themselves. They say that they think that happiness is found in the right body shape, or in a particular status in a peer group, or even in social media presence. 
the happiness that comes from these sources is short-lived, is elusive, and sin manages to mess with even the best that this life has to offer. Now, you might be wondering, why is it, why is it that we're talking about happiness? Why is it, how does it relate to Psalm 119? Well, the reason for talking about happiness as we become, begin this sermon is that this psalm starts, as the Psalter as a whole does, with the word blessed. If you look there in verse 1, you find the word blessed. In verse 2, you find the word blessed as well. The word blessed is the Hebrew word for happy. In both the Old and New Testaments, the blessed one is the happy one. Uh, these eight verses can be divided naturally into three parts. No, I th- though pretty much every preacher says that about every portion of the Bible, right? They can be divided into three parts. But this one truly can. You see in verses 1 through 3, the delight of an obedient life. In verses 4 and 5, we see the duty of an obedient life. And then in verses 6 through 8, the, the, the determination to live an obedient life. So let's look at the delight. The delight of an obedient life in verses 1 through 3. Some people think that Christianity is a religion that is against happiness. It was, uh, it was said, uh, a secular author writing about the Puritans said that the, Puritan, the Puritans were people who were looking for someone somewhere having fun so they could stop them. And that's not true at all. Uh, the only person who says that is a person who never read uh, the Puritans at all. And some people think of that's true of all of Christianity, even though even some Christians tend to live life as if uh, this life must be a life of unhappiness so they can have happiness in the future. But this thought cannot be further from the truth. In fact, this psalm, as we're going to look through uh, the months to come, is written to increase our happiness by guiding us through the Word of God to the God of the Word. That's what this psalm does for us. Show us where true happiness is by guiding us through the Word of God to the God of the Word. This psalm speaks of an otherworldly supernatural joy in any circumstance. A joy in, in and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the, the Lord who himself says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. The, 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 the Lord who said, These things we write to you, that our joy may be full. Full joy, full happiness is possible. This psalm tells us from the get-go, and this is where it is found. It, it, it's found in the God who is revealed in this book. That's where joy is. And the psalmist knows it firsthand as we read many different expressions of a man happy in God and his word. We see in verse 16 that he's delighting in the word. In verse 97, he loves the word with passion. In verse 11, 111, God's word is the great joy of his heart. In verse 162, he rejoices at God's word. And several times he says that he's happier in God's word than in gold or riches. So we're not reading somebody here who did not understand the idea of happiness, but one who truly found what happiness is in God and uh, in the Word of God as it leads to the God of the Word. And the, and the first two lines of verse 119, of Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2, 
reiterate that this blessed, this happy estate is to be found and pursued in God and His Word. And notice that the psalmist is speaking of a lifestyle of obedience when he talks about happiness. When he talks about delighting in obedience of the Word of God, he talks about living according to that Word in order to delight in the Lord. The words, if you look through verses 1 through 8, you're going to find the word walk and the word way and the word keep and the word seek. These tell us that the Holy Spirit is focusing on the film of a person's life, not individual snapshots. Happiness is found in a life that's constantly lived in obedience to the Word of God, and that delights in that obedience. The double blessedness of verses 1 and 2 is a a deep, divine delight, God-given happiness, a deep-seated joy from God to those in relationship with Him, whose chief goal is to glorify Him and enjoy Him. And notice that verse 2 tells us that happiness comes from a wholeheartedly seeking of God through His Word. Not a half-hearted, begrudging, passionless religion. This psalm tells us to pursue God and His Word with our whole heart. And to do that through an obedient life. The psalm will often speak of how the whole heart and all affections and delight for God and His Word are what cause the Christian to meditate on Scripture, which he loves supremely and rejoices in. It's interesting that these two first verses have been likened to two doormen on both sides of the entrance of this psalm that welcome us to this psalm, and they really summarize the dominant message of Psalm 119, that there, there is a supreme happiness, there is a joy of the Lord, that is a strength of those who love and live the word. And these blessed ones in Psalm 119 are introduced as undefiled. If you look at verse 1, blessed are the undefiled in the way. Undefiled or blameless. That's the same word here. And the blameless person is one who lives according to God's word in repentance who is not clinging to sin, who is not a hypocrite, whose life is characterized by love and obedience to God, who, when they fall into sin, repent and turn to the Lord and forgive for forgiveness. Now, being blameless or being undefiled is not being perfect. Uh, These are not synonymous. Being blameless is being a person of integrity, is being a person who knows when they have sinned, they repent and come to the Lord for forgiveness. If you think about Psalm 119, it's actually a very detailed exposition of another psalm. As you read the beginning of the psalm, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Does that remind you of any other psalm in the Psalter? Which one? One. So Psalm 119 is a detailed exposition of Psalm 1. You can find all the elements of Psalm 1, but instead of whatever the six verses of Psalm 1, you have 176 verses speaking of the content of the first few verses there in which the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, 
nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth the, its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. This happiness that I'm talking about, though, is countercultural and counterintuitive. As we saw in our response to reading, we read the Beatitudes, you notice in our response to reading. In the New Testament, that word blessed is also the word for happy. And you notice, who are the happy people? Happy is the pure, or the poor in spirit. Happy is the persecuted. These are not statements that the world or the secular society will make. And yet the scripture says that happiness is in these, these faithfulness to the Lord. Jesus says that the blessed the happy ones are those who mourn over their sin and who are humble and who hunger and thirst for a righteousness that's not their own. That's what makes the citizens of heaven who inherit the earth, who see God, who will be in the kingdom. Those are the happy ones. And notice in these eight verses, the, 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 sorry, the first three verses, the actions of happiness. Walk in the law of the Lord. Remember that the word law here encompasses all of the Bible. Seek, keep his testimonies. Seek him with the whole heart. The pursuit, pursuit of the word is ultimately a pursuit of God himself. The psalmist is not interested in a Bible knowledge so that you can win trivia games. He's not interested in you just becoming a Bible scholar for the sake of becoming a Bible scholar. The purpose, he, he wants to know you to know the Bible. He wants to obey the Bible because he's seeking God with his whole heart. The purpose of getting to know the Word of God is to get to know the God of the Word. So he says, blessed is the one that knows the Bible, that walks in it, that seeks the God of this Word. So walk, keep, seek, do no iniquity, he says. Uh, the, the righteous, the happy person is not in the habit of practicing sin as a way of life. Now, we, I, would, I, would make, I would do you a disfavor if I told you that sin is not fun. Sin is fun. And sin provides even a momentary joy. There is a momentary happiness in sin. There is a passing satisfaction in sin. When we break God's law, we're doing something that we really want, that our heart wants, and that feels good, fulfills a particular uh, desire at the moment. But it's just that, a passing momentary joy that opens the door of a sadness of heart that can only be silenced by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are honest with yourself, and if you've been involved in habitual sin, you know that's the case. There's that moment where you have the high of the sin, and your desires are met, and you have that happiness, that fulfillment that comes from that particular sin at that moment. But yet, if you're truly a believer, soon after, the guilt of sinning against a holy God just is poured on your shoulders, and you've, you, you, that, that moment of joy is completely gone, replaced by great sadness that can only be overcome through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
So the psalm calls us to delight in obedient life because that's a life that pleases the Lord. But it doesn't stop there. He tells, he tells us that we, are, we have the duty to obey the Lord, the duty of an obedient life in verses 4 and 5. The psalmist says, You have commended us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Lately, in Reformed circles, in Bible-believing Reformed and Presbyterian circles, there is, there is this aversion to the idea of duty, to the idea of obedience, to the idea of following the law of God. There's a concern about what's called legalism. Now, legalism is trusting things that we do as a means for God to accept us. Legalism is the idea that we can obey some set of rules good enough that God will say, okay, he's all right. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be his God and the Father, and eventually we'll be in heaven together. That's what legalism is. Some people think that, they, that if they obey the commands of the Bible, God will accept them because of their obedience. And if they just do more of that, more of that good than the bad they do, then we're good to go. Others realize they can't keep the, the commands of God, so they make up a list of other commands in order to be able to um, be acceptable to God. And this is a default human position. That's how we naturally are. We're bargainers. We try to make bargains with God. Hey, God, if I do these things, that should be good enough, right, for us to be uh, good with, who, with one another. So we need to be careful that we're not doing that, that we're not obeying God in order to be, have a relationship with Him, in order to be made right with Him. Having said that, though, I see the charge of legalism being laid upon the call to be faithful to all the scriptures, including the commands that God has given us. I see in churches now that uh, the idea that if you call anybody to obedience, somehow you're being a legalist. The problem with that is that the Bible does that. Paul, in Ephesians 6, tells the husband, love your wife. That's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a something to do on your off day or anything like that. Paul says, pursue your sanctification. Don't give in to sexual morality. Those things are command that are in the Bible. And what I've seen is that every time that this, char- not every time, but often when this charge of legalism is, is laid up in, in the church, is brought up, is more often than not, because we just don't want to do what the Bible tells us to do. Oh, it's legalism. You're telling us to obey the God, the, the, what the Bible says? That's legalism. That Christian code word, too, I just don't want to do what the Bible tells me. I remember years ago, trying to counsel a woman. She came with her friend, and she said, No, I'm not going to be submissive to my husband. Uh, I said, Okay, but then I opened the Bible, and I showed her that says that she's supposed to be submissive to her husband and so on. Well, but I don't feel like it, and if I don't feel like it and just do it anyway, that would be legalism. No, that would be obedience to Christ who you claim to believe in. So we have to be careful to not be legalists, but the Bible calls us to duty, to obedience. And it is a duty that we do whether we feel it or not, like it or not. And we obey Him because we have been accepted in the Beloved. We don't do it so that God will accept us. We do it because we have been accepted. We have been changed. We now belong to to, to God. We've been united to Christ. Christ is our head. We are sitting in heavenly places with Him. 
And because of that, then we obey him. Uh, Paul brings this ideas, this, these ideas again in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, where he says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ has, laid, has also laid hold of me. Paul says, I'm laying hold, I'm, I'm working at getting what Christ has already gotten hold of me for. So Christ got hold of Paul, changed him, made him a citizen of heaven, pointed him to heaven, is pushing him to heaven, and because Christ is doing that, Paul does it. And that's true of you and I as well. Because Christ has got hold of us, now we live out of obedience, in obedience, whether we desire it or not. Paul says earlier in Philippians chapter 2, uh, work out your salvation. Work out the way you serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Work it out. It's, that's work. It's not a walk in the park. Why? Because God is working you to will and to do of His good pleasure. And so the psalmist says in verse 4, you have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. You've commanded us, and that's what we're going to set up to do. But he recognized that on his own he can't do it. So in verse 5 he says, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. He recognized the, 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 just the grandeur of the task given to obey God and he turns to God in prayer and says, God, it's by your strength that I will obey you. Give me the grace to do that. So that's what we do. We pray, Lord, I cannot do that with you, without you. I need you. I need your grace. And when you say amen, guess what we do? We sit there and wait to be zapped, right? No, we go out and, and give feet to our prayer and do exactly what we pray God will strengthen us to do. Because in doing that, we're experiencing the very grace that God has given to us to obey Him. So let me ask you this. How many more times does Christ have to be crucified to grant you all the grace that you need to obey Him? Does... Did Christ not accomplish something on the cross? Is, he, is it missing something? Is, is it, uh, uh, the infinite sacrifice of Christ is lacking something? When we say that we can't obey God, when we won't obey God because we're waiting for some grace that's still to come, we're saying, you know what? I'm special. I, I'm so special that the cross of Christ wasn't sufficient for me. I have to wait for some other grace in the future for me to do this. Until I judge as having received that grace, I'm not going to follow Christ. And the psalmist says, no. I'll keep your diligence, uh, your precepts diligently. Direct me to that way. And thirdly, so we are to, de- we delight in obedient, we are to delight in obedient life. We, are to, we have the duty of an obedient life. And we are to determine to live an obedient life. Look at verses 6 through 8. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgment. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me. Do you see the, determ- the, the, the determination that the, that the psalmist makes there in verse 6 and 7, I will do it. I will praise you. I will keep your statutes because of your grace. I will do that. And he determines to do that. Often we don't do that. We just say, you know what? I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm going to fail anyway. No, God calls you to determine to obey him. And that's what we do. By his grace, we determine to obey him. And in his determination to obey God's word, 
he cries out to the Lord, and there's a sense of desperation in the cry. Look at verse 8. And notice how it's kind of, it seems to be out of context. He says, I'll keep your statutes. That's in con- that seems to match what he's just said. But then he breaks out in this cry and says, oh, do not forsake me utterly. It seems to not match the, re- the rest of the seven and a half verses. There's this plea for God not to forsake him. And I think there might be two possible reasons for this cry here. First, he looked at all the times he had forsaken God. He looked at all the times he failed in obeying God. And a fear that God would forsake him because he had forsaken God came upon him. Secondly, as we saw last week, this psalm arose, the occasion for the writing, what gave birth to this psalm, was great suffering in his life. And he looked around and saw all the suffering in his life, and he thought, maybe this is not consistent with God being faithful to me. Maybe he's forsaken me because of all this, this suffering that I'm going through. There's, maybe these things got him to do that, to, to cry out. And this cry at the end of the first stanza is very important for us. And if you haven't paid attention to anything I've said, pay attention to this. And if you think everything everything else I said has been foolish, this is not, because your life depends on what I'm going to say in the next few minutes. With all this talk about obedience, even the best of men cannot obey as God demands, which is, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. Galatians 3, 10 says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And on our own, if we do not continually do all that God calls us to do, we are under divine curse, deserving damnation, according to the judge of the universe, deserving because of our sin to be forsaken early. We, we deserve to be forsaken by God on our own. We deserve to be eternally separated from God. We can ask God not to forsake us. We can try our best to do better at obeying the Bible than we have in the past. But on what basis? I mean, answer this question. On what basis can we have the confidence that we will not be eternally damned or cursed or forsaken when we already have violated his law so many times? What confidence can you have on your own that God is not going to forsaken you eternally because you and I have violated his law so, 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 so many times? When we understand how holy God is and how much he hates sin and that his pure and perfect nature demands that all sin must be punished by death, and that's death both physically and spiritual, indicating separation, and that God cannot have anything sinful in His presence. He cannot look on any, on any sin. And that our, God, our, our good deeds of obedience can never outdo or erase the sinful crimes we have committed against God, the judge Himself. How can this prayer be answered? Do not forsake me utterly. How can your prayer, can be, how can your prayer be answered that God will not forsake you? That's the question that you need to answer. Because your life depends on it. How can we know that God won't forsake us? The only way to know that God won't forsake us is by listening to another psalm 
a psalm quoted by our Savior on the cross of Calvary, when he himself, quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, says, My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? A cry from the cross, a cry that um, R.C. Sproul called the, the, the cry of the damned, the Son of God crucified, saying, Why have you forsaken me? The cross of Calvary is God's judgment on sin, the weight of, of sinners on the shoulders of the Son of God. Jesus cries out these words as the Father places upon him the guilt of our sins and pours out the cup of wrath for sin on Christ. What caused this cry of Christ wasn't necessarily the nails or the thorns. It was not even the rejection of mere men or the human enemies. But for the first time, because of sin upon him, in his humanity, he feels rejected by his own loving Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me. Instead of the infinite love they had shared with each other since before time began, now Jesus in his humanity is feeling the infinite wrath of the infinite God in all its fullness towards sin, like my sin, like your sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus here cries out in the loudest voice into the darkened heavens on that Friday, at the top of his lungs, in unbearable and unparalleled human agony and anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus himself knew no sin. He had no sin of his own, but my sin and your sin, in all its wretched ugliness, was being punished by God Almighty in this sickening scene. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are sinners who should have been there. We are the ones who forsake God and would continue to forsake Him if not for the cross. We are the ones who have to pray like Psalm 119 verse 8 for God not to forsake us this way. It is because Jesus Christ cried out the words, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me on the cross? It is precisely because of that event that we who are in Christ can know that we will not be utterly forsaken by God. The answer to the prayer of Psalm 119 verse 8 is secured for all believers because of what Christ did on the cross. Because God forsook His Son, you and I will never be forsaken. He took the place of all the redeemed, he is our substitute, he is our representative, bearing the wrath of God we deserve, the full fury and forsaking of the Father that we all deserve to experience right now and for all eternity. The, this bloody atonement of our Lord was a real, vicarious, legal punishment that actually redeems the horror behind those genuine words expressed by our Savior in full human emotion are precisely the basis for the good news, the best news, that we do not have to face the horror of being forsaken by God 
if Jesus is our Lord and we are trusting in him as taking our place in bearing our punishment for our sin. Those words should have been our agonizing scream. We should be the ones screaming, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we don't have to scream that because our Savior did so. And because Jesus uttered these words of ultimate abandonment, the Father says to us, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. If you have been saved by His grace, be amazed by His grace. Let Him be praised for His mercy that will not forsake you. If it's not because of us, it's not on our account of, of us, it's because of Him. In First Samuel, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22, the Lord says, The Lord will not forsake His people. Why? For His great name's sake. It's not for the sake of, the, of your name. It's not for the sake of my name, but for, the, for God. So let, a, let, let this humble you. Let this dazzle you. And make, your, make you happy before the splendor of God and the scripture that reveal His mercy. And determine, determine to live a life of obedience that, flow, that flows from God having heard the cry of His Son, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And answer that question by raising Him from the dead and setting Him on the throne and bringing all things under His feet to rule over His church and to give gifts to His church. So we delight in a life of obedience. We, fall, we know that we have a duty to live a life of obedience and we determine to live a life of obedience because our God has rescued us and pushed us in that path. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a God who saves and continues to sanctify your people. Give us a grace to live in obedience to you for asking in Jesus' name. Amen.